0: Some people think that God is done with the people of Israel, that the covenant that God made was conditional in nature, and so when they come and they talk about election, they're not going to see Israel being chosen out of all the nations of the world, but they're going to be, see some being chosen for heaven and some other individuals being chosen for hell.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the national section of the Book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we pick up in chapter 9 today as we look at the privilege of Israel, which was elected by God as His chosen nation. It was through Israel that God brought His Word, the Bible, to man.
0: Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the Book of Romans, chapter 9. We began a brand new section in Romans last week, and we only got through the first three verses. Now, whether you know it or not, Romans 9 is one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. The focus of the chapter concerns divine election, and it's one of those topics that pastors often fear to tread. A lot of pastors don't preach verse by verse through the Bible because when you do, you come to texts like this and you can't skip them. Uh, As soon as you mention words like election, or preordination, or predestination, or foreknowledge, you can almost hear the guns load up. You can almost hear the insurrection in the hearts of some people, because some good Christian people who love Christ differ on this issue. Now most weeks I park way out there in one of the cheap spots to leave the best spots for our visitor, but today I have my car running right outside the front door. It's gassed up. I'm ready to go. Election, predestination. A lot of people have some preconceived notions as to what that means or what it does not mean. But as we go through Romans 9, whatever your view may be, just be open to the Lord. Let Him speak to you. Let Him minister to you. We're we're, we're dealing with issues of what theologians call inscrutable. And our problem is that very often we try to unscrew the unscrutable. But I hope to do that in the next few months as we work through Romans, the ninth chapter. Now, if you were here last week, we just did three verses and just two today, and I'm going very slow through the introduction to this subject because very often the first five verses are rushed through. And because they are rushed through, they miss the whole message of the chapter. So these five preliminary verses we're going to see are very critical to understanding Romans chapter 9. Now, if I were to just preach the highlights of the book of Romans, I would probably skip this portion of Scripture. Some people might find it boring, but it is here for us, and all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So let's begin reading to get kind of a running start into the context. Let's start in verse 1, follow along. The Apostle Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And then, so you can see where this is leading, follow along beginning in verse 6, which we will begin in our next time together. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now let's take just a brief moment to get our bearings of the context. In one word, the book of Romans is about salvation. The Apostle Paul, in the first eight chapters, has been showing us our need. He's been showing us God's provision in the need for you and I to respond to that provision. And of course, whenever you get into a biblical discussion on salvation, you have to speak about Jewish people. Because as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. And so in Romans 9, 10, and 11, the subject is the nation of Israel. And I told you last time that sometimes people treat 9 through 11 as kind of a parenthesis, almost as an interruption in the book of Romans. But it is not. The 8th chapter ends reminding us of our security in Jesus Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if that's true, and if it is true as God repeatedly says in the Old Testament that He loved Israel with an eternal, everlasting love, then why does it appear that God has abandoned Israel? And so Paul is going to show us in this section why it is that the Jewish people for the most part rejected Jesus as Lord. Why it is that they are in unbelief and that though they are temporarily laid aside, God will pick them back up and use them. He will keep all of his promises. As you can see from this chart, the section called the National Section of Romans divides into three sections. In chapter 9, we saw Israel's past election, how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth. Jesus, who is God, in his humanity, he is a Jew. So I suppose we should not be surprised that people have intensely hated Jewish people more than any other race on the planet. Nonetheless, chapter 10 will help us to understand why they are in rejection, why they are in unbelief. So in chapter 9, God elects them. You have that written over the top of your chapter, Israel's past election. Over chapter 10, I hope you've written Israel's present rejection. And then when we would come to the 11th chapter, we're going to see Israel's future restoration. Now, why do men reject him? Why did they reject him? One reason, they don't see the need. People are often self-righteous. And so to his own people, he said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And so, very simple. Chapter 9, election. Chapter 10, rejection. Chapter 11, restoration. In chapter 9, the subject is God's sovereignty. In chapter 10, God's justice. And in chapter 11, God's grace. So here's the problem. How could the people of Israel, being chosen out of all the nations of the world, how could they have possibly rejected and missed their Messiah? If the gospel is the introduction to Romans Teaches, had been introduced long ago through the prophets, then why did they miss it? If this is good news to the Jew first and then to the Greek, why are they in unbelief? So he's going to help us to understand that. Now, at the end of chapter 8, he moves from incredible joy into chapter 9 with intense sorrow. Look again at the introductory verses. He says, I am telling... The truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And what is this grief and sorrow over? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So in chapter 8, he rejoices. In chapter 9, he weeps. We studied last week how the apostle giving three witnesses was willing to be cursed if it could mean the salvation of his own people. He's really a remarkable man. He told the Philippians he would be willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. And here he tells the Romans he'd be willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. He's a man with great compassion and love for the people of God. A man who would desire to be damned to hell in order that the damned might be saved in heaven. What an evangelistic zeal. Now, the one agonizing truth that makes it even harder for Paul is the great blessings these people were given. And so in verses 4 and 5, which is the focus today, he's going to remind us of seven specific blessings that the nation of Israel had. They were born, so to speak, with a silver spoon in their mouth. And that's what makes it so hard, that they were given all these blessings, and yet they didn't respond to them. Now, I thought for a moment, well, maybe I should make seven sermons out of the seven blessings. And then I got a better idea and I said, we'll do it all in one sermon. So tighten your pew belt, get ready. Here we go. There in your note taking outline, seven blessings. And the first concerns the fact that Israel was privileged to be adopted as sons. They were adopted as sons. Again, to get a start from verse three, I wish that I myself were cursed. Separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, not according to the spirit as he had hoped, born again, but my kinsmen only on a physical level, according to the flesh. And then he enumerates the blessings they have first, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. God himself, out of all the nations of the world, chose the Hebrew people to be his own people. He had Moses go and tell Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Hosea the prophet recorded God as saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The Jews were adopted as God's own people. The term adoption is used repeatedly of Christians. It's used throughout the Old Testament, but it's only found one place in all the New Testament in reference to the people of Israel, and it's right here in this text. When God describes how He adopted them as a nation in Deuteronomy 7, He said this through Moses, "'For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession.'" out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God speaks of Israel as his son. He never said that of any other nation. So here's Paul reaffirming a truth that they are, as we will often say today, God's chosen people. Now, the fact that they are God's chosen nation, God's chosen people, does not mean that every Jew goes to heaven. Any more than it means in the household passages in the New Testament, that because one is a member of the faith, that everyone in the household is. Some have abused texts like Acts 16, when Paul is asked by the Philippian jailer, What must I do to be saved? And both he and Silas, almost in unison, because they said it so many times, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And some take that phrase, you and your household to refer to what is sometimes called household salvation. And by that they mean, because I have believed, that means that someday everyone in my house will believe, or some will say, because I have believed, my faith will save everyone in my house. But the Bible is crystal clear that no one can be saved for another person. John 1.12 teaches that we must individually receive Christ and to those who have believed he has given the right, the power, the authority to become children of God. Not to mention that interpretation doesn't fit the rest of the Bible nor the immediate context of Acts 16. If they just read the next verse, it would become even clearer. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to the jailer, together with all, A-double-L, to all, Who were in his house. And so his wife, if there was one, and his children, if there were some, all heard the gospel that day. It's very, very clear in the text. You could amplify verse 31 to say, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and everyone in your house who believes. And again, that's very clear. Because verse 32 says, all in the house heard the word. Verse 34 says, all believed. And verse 34 also says, all rejoiced. There were no infants here. All heard and all believed. And so some take this text as the biblical basis for infant baptism, if you wondered where they got it. It's not in the text. There are five household salvation passages or five household passages in the New Testament. And in four out of five, it explicitly says that everyone heard and everyone received and believed in the Lord. And so here's the point I'm trying to make. Just like I can't be saved for the rest of my house, neither because God chose the nation of Israel does it mean that every Jew is automatically saved. All you have to do is read your Old Testament and it becomes crystal clear that many Jewish people died and went to hell. Remember that occasion with the rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16? Let me refresh your memory. And he, that is Moses, after he had finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households. And all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions... So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Moses drew a line in the sand that day. He basically said what Joshua said, choose whom this day whom you will serve. And some entire household said, we're going to serve Korah in his rebellion. And all who went with him were literally, physically, actually swallowed up alive into hell. Now understand, millions of Jewish people you will meet in heaven because they were believers. Throughout the Old Testament, many Jews believed that the Savior of the world would come. The very first promise of a Savior is found in Genesis 3, and it becomes the theme of the entire Old Testament. And so people in the Old Testament who made it to heaven got there by believing in the Savior who would come. They looked ahead as we look back. But between Malachi and the coming of the Lord Jesus when Matthew describes it, was a 400-year period where there was no prophet in Israel. And during that 400-year period, many of the Jewish people, at least by the time Messiah comes on the scene, were very hard, very self-righteous, and very unbelieving. But nonetheless, God still chose them as a nation. And we're going to see that God has not abandoned them as a nation, that they have a great Role in the return of Jesus from heaven. Now, second privilege: the second blessing is enumerated in that they were privileged to be revealed the glory, privileged to be revealed the glory. Again, the text says that they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and here comes the second privilege: the glory. The second blessing that they experienced was the very literal, physical, actual presence of God, as seen in the Shekinah glory. Israel not only had the adoption, they had hadoxa. We get our word doxology from the Greek word doxa. It's translated glory. They had the glory. They were the only people in the history of the world that had a literal, actual, physical, visible demonstration of God's presence. They saw it in the Old Testament first as a pillar of cloud by day. Bring up that, if you will, if you remember. Uh, When the people set out, God brought a pillar of cloud. Some think that this provided shade. It certainly will when it appears again during the millennium. We don't know for sure if it did in that day. But among other things that we do know, it provided leadership. Way out in the front of that crew of some 2 million plus people, was the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites with all the tabernacle equipment and the pillar of cloud that led them. When it stopped, that's where they stopped. When it uh, picked up and moved, that's when they moved. At night, it changed into a pillar of fire. You can see when the tabernacle was ultimately constructed, it was right in the center of the camp. And you can read the book of Numbers, which is a book that recounts two senses during the... Uh, wandering years, the 40 wandering years. And if you've ever studied the tabernacle and the furniture, it's in the perfect shape of a cross, the way it's arranged. And later that center piece would be basically in the temple. And again, the equipment was in the shape of a cross. And though you cannot see it well here on this diagram, God specified how they were to camp around the tabernacle. At the entrance here on the east gate, you had Judah and two other tribes. On the north, on the left side, you had Reuben and two other tribes. On the west, you had um, Ephraim and two other tribes. And on the south, you had Dan and two other tribes. And they camped under four banners, and they camped in such a way that if you were up on a high hill and you were looking down, it was in the perfect shape of a cross. God gave the numbers and numbers for a reason. And when you take the whole 600,000, you take the percentages, you see how God specifically said they were to camp. It forms a beautiful cross. So there's a cross within the cross. And at night, there was a pillar of fire that provided, I'm sure, warmth on some days, but it certainly provided light. We're told in Exodus 13, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from the people. And if you remember during that 40 year period, during that time of wandering, God specifically said this in the prayer that Moses recounts in Numbers 14. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses tells us that when all the surrounding nations looked down and they saw the Israelites camping in formation, they saw the very presence of God, there was a miracle that those people witnessed. Nehemiah centuries later records a prayer that the Levites made they said in Nehemiah 9 and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go the glory also descended literally on the top of Mount Sinai when Moses went up there and he was given the Ten Commandments in addition there was a little tent not to be confused with the tabernacle that Moses would go into and he would meet God in that tent and the glory would once again be seen. It says when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Later, of course, the tabernacle, that portable worship center was built. And when the construction was all done, then we read as we saw pictured, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, there's a more permanent structure that's built in the city of Jerusalem. It's called the temple. And in the temple, there was a section called the Holy of Holies. And above the Ark of the Covenant, the glory again would come. And His presence was so strong that the chronicler says that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Out of all the nations of the world, there was only one nation that was given the glory. A literal, physical expression of God's presence. Um, It's called by some rabbis the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah is not a biblical word, but it certainly represents a biblical truth because it's a Hebrew word that means he caused to dwell. Indeed, God chose to dwell among his people, Israel. There is, and has never ever been since that time, a literal, visible, external symbol of God's presence. Now, I remember watching the 700 Club years ago, and they had this evangelist on, and he said every time he set up his little tent in which he did his revivals, he said the Shekinah glory would fill the tent and then it would be over the tent. Of course, only he could see it. You know, you hear stuff like that, and you know they're either lying or exaggerating. In this case, I don't think he was lying. Well, later to find out he was a drug addict and he died of that. You know, you you take some strong enough drugs, you'll see all kinds of stuff. But here's the point. Only Israel was given the physical, visible expression of God. Even the church today doesn't have the Shekinah. We have God, the Holy Spirit living in us. We are little individual temples of the Holy Spirit making one universal church. Now, there's a third blessing. Israel was also privileged to be assigned the covenants. They were assigned the covenants. Paul will write Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory. And then he adds and the covenant. So the third blessings, third blessing was the covenant or the agreements. It's in the plural here. And God gave many covenants. Probably the most important covenant as it relates to this section, as we will see, is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's recorded in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It's reiterated to Jacob, uh, to Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And it was a covenant that out of all the peoples of the world, God would use the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, to bring the Messiah. And as we will see, it is an unconditional covenant. There are other covenants that God made. There was the covenant of law that God made with Moses. There's the covenant that God made with David, that from his family, the Christ would come and ultimately would sit literally on the throne and rule and reign upon the earth, yet to happen. And so before we are done, we're going to see that the covenants are very, very important. And as Paul is going to note here, notice he says, to whom belongs the covenants. They still belong to the people of Israel. And this, as you're going to see, is going to become critically important as to how you interpret Romans 9. Some people think that God is done with the people of Israel, that the covenant that God made was conditional in nature, and so when they come and they talk about election, they're not going to see Israel being chosen out of all the nations of the world, but they're going to be see some being chosen for heaven and some other individuals being chosen for hell. But God made an unconditional covenant with Israel, with Abraham, that he has yet to totally fulfill, but because he is a promise-keeping God, because God cannot lie, he is going to keep it. Now, Paul's just introducing this to us, but he's going to unfold these seven blessings as we walk through Romans 9 through 11. The fourth privilege he lists is that Israel was privileged to be given the law. Notice, who are Israelites... To whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. The Old Testament was, of course, not called the Old Testament in the first century. It was just called the Scriptures. Or sometimes it was just given the designation of the law. Or if you wanted to subdivide it even more, you might say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the law, the prophets, and the writings. Here he's just referring to the fact that the Jews had been given The law. Now, Paul has already noted this in Romans chapter 2. If you remember the second chapter of Romans, I know it seems like an eternity when we are back there. <clears throat> but in Romans 2, he demonstrates that the religious Jew is just as guilty as the hardcore pagan Gentile. And Paul, just like an attorney, takes them apart piece by piece, and he strips them naked by the power of the Holy Spirit as the inspiration comes through his pen, and they are left guilty. And of course, the immediate question that a Jew would then ask is, well, then what advantage really is there to being a Jew? And of course, Paul gives a very direct answer at the start of chapter 3 to that question. A lot of people would think, well, if this is the way it is, there is no advantage to being God's chosen people. But Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 2, the advantage, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jewish people were the recipients of the scriptures. They were the caretakers of the word of God. Now, I'm not a fanatic where I'm afraid if I drop my Bible on the floor, I've committed a sin. I'm not afraid to write in my Bible or underline it. I don't worship the book. I worship the God of the book. But some of us, when we come to this book, we come very flippantly. Some of us don't care enough to even bring a Bible to church. If you don't have one, we can rectify that. But if you do have one, you should bring it. Because what you hold in your hands this morning is the very word of God Almighty. If the President of the United States sent you a personal letter, you would probably pore over it very carefully. Well, the God of the universe has given you his love letter, and we need to read it. And that love letter was entrusted to the Jewish people. They gave us the Bible.
1: We are looking at the privilege of Israel as part of our study in the Book of Romans. To listen again to this message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM44. And when you do contact us, why not make a one-time gift or perhaps become an STS partner It's through the generosity of people like you that Search the Scriptures is able to grow people in the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue our look at the privilege of Israel. Join us then as we Search the Scriptures.